there's always been uh, somewhat of a of a confusion. I know that when I first began to think about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, and then also to read passages uh, regarding the kingdom of God, uh, that we wonder, uh, are they different? Uh, is the kingdom of heaven something different than the kingdom of God? And I think the answer is, well, yes. Um, but one of the things that I think characterizes the kingdom of heaven so that we understand it is the rule of Jesus Christ in Christendom, and I didn't say the church, in the sphere of profession, the rule of Jesus Christ as he is in heaven. And to bring that home to us, uh, I think more conclusively, uh, we can turn, interestingly enough, to Matthew chapter 25. And I had never really thought about this, but you may well remember that Matthew 25 is um, in that discourse of Christ that we call the Olivet Discourse. That is where Christ uh, told uh, his listeners uh, very much, uh, a lot of information regarding the things to come and, and many things that are going to happen uh, in not only in the future of the disciples that lived in that day, but that are yet undone and are to still be fulfilled even in our future. Uh, and so it, um, it sparked my imagination, I guess I could say, or it made me take, sit up and take notice that in the midst of the Olivet Discourse, I find two parables associated with the kingdom of heaven. And one of them, in my opinion, makes it very clear that the kingdom of heaven uh, is shown to be that rule of Christ in the earth, but he is in heaven. And so the, the kingdom, where the king is, is in heaven. And that's, as we know, that when 
Christ ascended there, described in Acts chapter 1. Uh, he went to his father, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of his father. Um, and so he is absent. And starting with chapter 25, verse 14, we read these words. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling to a far country. And as I read this, I, uh, I came to uh, believe that this parable uh, very well uh, could have been uh, included in the seven parables in Matthew 13, but God chose it not to be. Uh, but it is very much and very similar to the meaning of the seven parables of Matthew 13. Let's see what it says. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, and to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise he that received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. Now, I would, I would equate this, if you would, with the judgment seat of rewards in some degree. And so that he had... He that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou have been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That's kind of interesting that uh, the uh, the reward that came to those first two servants uh, seemed to be uh, at least had the same wording. That is, uh, you know, you've been faithful to a few things. I will make thee rule over many things. That came to the five talent man and to the two talent man. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, 
reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid my talent in the earth. Lo, there has thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful, that wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. That would be interest. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which has ten talents, for unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath, and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there are many things that we could say about that parable, but the most important thing is that the master who gave abilities, and I would liken this uh, for us uh, unto the gifts of the Holy Ghost, and also to spiritual gifts uh, that are outlined in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 and Romans 14, um, that we have been given much and that our reason for existing here is that we might uh, be able to have something, uh, and he doesn't specify what that is, but have, have taken the gifts that he has given us, and we have put them to good use, and we have added to that which will bring him glory in eternity. Um, and that is exactly uh, reminiscent of what Christ did. Christ uh, died on the cross. He went into heaven, and shortly afterwards, he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell all believers and provided for them gifts of the Spirit and, of course, the capacity for fruit of the Spirit. And so when we think about the kingdom of heaven, we should think about it from the, the important truth that the kingdom of heaven is the rule of Christ over that body which he planted in the earth before he left. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And uh, he is the head of the body. And we go to Second or First Corinthians and we, we read that uh, there are many parts of the body, but one head. And that head is Jesus Christ, and he sits in heaven now, and he is the head of, of all of those who would 
use his name to describe uh, their uh, uh, to describe their lives. And the the kingdom of God is, I believe, is different from the kingdom of heaven in that the kingdom of heaven is but a subset of the kingdom of God. In other words, when we're talking about a kingdom, we're talking about uh, the fact that, that God exercises his uh, kingly powers uh, as king of the universe, if you would, uh, and he, his will will be done. And under the auspices of the overall rule of God in the earth is pardon me the rule of god in the earth is um the rule of christ over his church now the rule of god in other words the kingdom of heaven is forever but the kingdom uh, pardon me, the, the kingdom of God is forever. I hope I said that. Mm -hmm. The kingdom of heaven is not forever because it started when the church was formed at Pentecost and it will end at the rapture whereby uh, that work and that, that kingdom will culminate in its fruition. Later on, the scripture tells us, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, tells us that when Christ has defeated every enemy, uh, these would be included in, you know, uh, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is, that the enemies of hell will all be defeated. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the last enemy that is to be defeated is death. And after that, 1 Corinthians tells us that then Christ will deliver his kingdom to the Father, and he will step back in that role of the eternal son, uh, bringing and having his purpose to allow the rule of God, whereby I'd like to say he, God, God the Father's calling the shots. And uh, the scripture says, Christ does this so that God the Father will be all in all. And so we see the reestablishment there of things that were um, changed for God's purpose in making mankind 
and bringing his son into the world as a man of flesh and then uh, allowing uh, the great turmoil that that has come in the kingdom from heaven, which will finally be overcome at the time of Christ handing up all of his victories to the Father. And so my take on it then is that uh, the kingdom of heaven is a subset or is under the overall auspices of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of heaven is, is on, that term is, also, is only used in the book of Matthew. I will also say to you that I believe that Luke and Mark have each only two repetitions of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven in, uh, that are delineated in Matthew 13. So that they are different um, and according to the purpose of the book of Matthew and the fact that it presents Christ as king, uh, it would naturally uh, give us information regarding all that he will be king over uh, or ruler over or the head of what would be the church. But I must uh, make sure that we understand that there is a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the church. The kingdom of heaven, as it is described in these parables, is all of that which professes Christ. That would include all those people who call themselves Christian and all who say that they worship the one God and all of the religions uh, in, you know, Catholicism uh, and Protestantism would fall under that overall description of, of uh, the uh, the entire sphere of Christ's headship. However, within Christendom, which makes up what is called the kingdom of heaven, within Christendom is the true church. And so using the word church here is not... Uh, to use it as the sphere of profession. So if we're trying to make the distinction that there is a sphere of profession that is called Christendom, but 
there are many and probably more non-believers, actually non-Christians in that category uh, than there are the true church. And I think the Lord has made that very clear. Um, that which God will do, and this is hard for many to understand, that which God will accomplish with his building of the church under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, well, I kind of lost my train of thought, but is is that 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 um, not all of Christendom is going to receive the blessing of God and be asked to enter in, uh, you know, to his eternal reign, uh, including the millennial kingdom and, what, and whatever goes on in the, uh, the state of being after those things. So, if I look back at every working of God under what we would call the management of his household, which is the term that are the terms that describe the word dispensation, and there are are seven of them. Uh, in every case, God has implemented a means whereby, and and a uh, either a command or commandments whereby He would order His household in each age that He has um, implemented. And the truth is. And I don't think many want to receive this, is that as Adam failed, as uh, uh, humanity failed um, uh, in the age of conscience, and how humanity failed in the age of human government, and how humanity failed when they were called out to be a special people unto God, the Hebrews, uh, becoming the nation of Israel, that in every one of those cases, and of course those four bring us up to the age of the church, in every one of those cases, man destroyed what could have been had he trusted in the situation that Almighty God put him under. So if he had believed God, if Adam had believed God, if, if those in Noah's time had believed God, if uh, those in Nimrod's time had believed God, if the Israelites had believed God, uh, there would have been a marvelous conclusion to each dispensation. But it's just not so. Uh, 
and it is no different in Christendom. But I tell you, there is in Christendom a, a extremely dis, distorted uh, false hope that the majority of the those who make up that uh, that body that uh, makes a profession of faith that uh, many of the people in Christendom have a false hope, believing that and and the theology of most Protestant churches and the theology of the Catholic Church teaches that the Church of Jesus Christ will bring the earth into a period and stage or place of righteousness, and that where in all other dispensations men have failed, the Church will succeed. And I tell you, by the definition of, of bringing the whole world to God, the church is a absolutely and will be a dismal failure. And out of it, as God has always done, he will bring a remnant. And he has not failed to, in his plan, his plan always was aware that men would fail in every case. But God gave man, and why did he? Why did God give man every opportunity to show what he could do in regard to living rightly before Almighty God? Why did he give man that opportunity under so many management situations? And the answer is that man, in every case, always believes that he in himself will make that charge of God, make it to come to fruition. And so men messed up every dispensation that there has been, and man is destroying that which could have been had those members of the church truly had, had kept their first love and for many had ever come to their first love. And so when we study these parables of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, we know that the outcome is always that there are some saved and many lost. And that is simply the truth of it. But in the end, uh, every promise of God 
and every decree that he made before the foundation of the world regarding the outcome of all situations, that every one of them will come to fruition as he had, had seen aforetime, that he had uh, knowledge of throughout what we call time, he knew what every outcome would be, but he allowed men to finally come to the place where they, they will eventually realize that only, only God can bring about righteousness. Yeah. And that is a great lesson yeah. for each of us. And so uh, the kingdom of heaven is going to put forward that within the sphere of profession of faith, there will be some who indeed become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And they will pass into the millennial kingdom and they will pass into the celestial city. But that many more will hold on to a false hope. And there are many kinds of false hope, hope in religion, hope in self-righteousness, hope in uh, knowledge, hope in uh, human ability. Uh, and we could go on and on that men will find, if they can, every way to insert them into the victory that only God can, can bring and to come to realize that and know that in the end, God will be all in all and man will never be able to say that he had one good thing to add to the work of God. All right, I hope that, I know that was a long drawn out explanation, but I hope it's helpful. And so tonight, I wanna start with the third mystery. Uh, and, we, and we call them mysteries because that's what Christ called them. For in, uh, in Matthew 13, 11, we read these words. And he answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Now, there are a number of mysteries in, in the scripture. Um, and a, a mystery is something that has always been in the mind of God, but not been revealed until 
he was ready for it to be revealed. And we should know that one of the other prominent mysteries that is working in the world and it is still working is the mystery of iniquity. And so it is the mystery of iniquity that has always been working against the mysteries of the righteous works of God. And so when I come to the third mystery, I believe I did cover last time that uh, Christ had explained, uh, pardon me, had given the mystery of the, um, of the wheat and the tares, or did I? No. Alice is telling me I didn't. And I think she's right. So I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Here's what it says. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Now, I just, I just want to say to you that I am not aware any place of this in the scripture, and this would only be in the New Testament. I don't think there are any parables in the old, um, that that Christ spoke the parables uh, and men have taken some of the things that Christ had to say and called them parables. And let me give you the prime example. Early on in the Gospels, we find a discussion of a rich man uh, who, uh, who lived a great life and outside of his gate, there lived an old, worn-out, good-for-nothing beggar. At least that would be how he was looked at by the rich man. And the beggar's name was Lazarus. And if we look in other places in Scripture, we'll find out the rich man's name was Dives. And so they both end up finally giving up the ghost, you know, in this life. And the rich man found himself in that portion of Abraham's bosom, which was uh, called, which could be called Hades. And he was very uncomfortable. And he could see that uh, across the way was a great chasm and there he saw Abraham, and there he saw Lazarus. And Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom in that part uh, where, of course, Abraham was, and that part was called paradise. And the rich man said to Abraham, can't you 
just send Lazarus to me with a drop of cool water on his finger that he might put it on my tongue to quench this burning thirst. And of course, that was not possible. Abraham explained that each of the men, that is Lazarus and the rich man, had made uh, for themselves in their lifetime, had made for themselves uh, a, uh, a place either in paradise or a place in Hades. And the rich man said, well, since you can't help me here, send, send somebody, send Moses, send or one of the prophets to my brothers and tell them about this place and warn them. And Abraham said, if they didn't listen to uh, the scriptures and the prophets, they weren't going to listen to someone as, as coming from the dead to give them that message. And so, you know, we look at that as a difficult story to think about. And many in Christendom who do not want to believe in the concept of eternal punishment label that story as a parable. But it is not a parable because every parable that Christ spoke of, he made it clear that it was a parable. And there was no such speaking regarding the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And so um, we know that Christ, as according to his own testimony, spoke in parables um, for the purpose that some would not understand it. And you know, there's a lot we could say about that, but primarily, when Christ came to Israel, God knew what the result of it would be. And God knew, and Christ knew, that men would thwart the offer of the kingdom uh, to them and that they would crucify their king. And so this parable, starting with Matthew 13, 24, uh, Yeah, is the parable of the kingdom of heaven 
which is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Now, only two of the parables were in were were described or were um, um, explained to these who were listening uh, by Christ. Only two of them. You should also know that the last three of the parables was not spoken to the Jewish masses, but Christ entered into a house and gave his disciples only the last three parables in this set of seven. So he said, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? Now, I was interested that uh, verse 26 tells me that these blades were sprung up and obviously were beginning at least to bring forth fruit. And the tares were in among them looking very much the same. Verse 27, uh, or verse 28, and he said unto them, this is the householder, or the, the man who owned the, the field, he said unto them, an enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, nay, lest while we gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest, I will say to the weeper, to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into the barn. Now, Christ goes ahead and gives two more parables before he explains the second one. And I'm going to skip over to verse 36 in Matthew 13, and we're going to talk about uh, what Christ had to say, this parable, uh, how it should be understood. Verse 36, Matthew 13, Then Jesus sent the multitude away, uh, into the house, his disciples came unto him, and they said, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And so, as we see this, we see that the, uh, the mass of the uh, people who listened to the first 
parable heard the explanation of the, the first parable. Christ gave the explanation of the second, but he didn't give it in front of, of the uh, masses of Israel. He gave it only to his disciples. I think that's noteworthy. He answered and said unto them, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed, and this is where we, we need to take note because Christ speaks this and we don't have to wonder about these plants that were coming up. The good seed, and in this case, is, are not called uh, are, are not called as they are in the first parable, just uh, shoots of of growth. But the good seed are the children of the kingdom. Now, the children of the kingdom uh, is those who will grow to maturity and bring forth fruit. And then he tells us, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. And so what is he saying? He is saying that within Christendom, there are those who truly believe and uh, are born again, they are adopted as sons of God. They are bringing forth some bounty of fruit and they are the children of the kingdom. And they belong to God. But the others are children of Satan. And so if one is not a true child of God in the kingdom, which encompasses all of the profession of faith, then we can know that whatever is their testimony that God knows they are the children of Satan. And that's a very difficult uh, conclusion for most Christians to make. That in the sphere of profession, probably the majority of those who claim uh, to be born again, our claim to have a relationship with God through Christ, and so on. They neither have known Christ, nor have they been known of Christ. Now, they were sowed by the enemy, the devil. And the harvest... Verse 39 is at the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Now, 
let's say something about the suggestion of the the landowner's servant to go out there in the field and hoe up the tares. Let us think about that in regard to how we who are members of the church of Jesus Christ and are of, uh, of the true vine, that how are we to deal in Christendom with those people who say they belong to Christ and who don't? or at least we think they don't. And you, if you know something about your history of Christendom, know that from the time of the, the consolidation of Christians under the reign of Constantine uh, and Later, uh, the development of the uh, the priesthood in Catholicism and uh, the popery that came to uh, be so insidious in its nature in that in that body that in early Christendom. Well, I don't know how early I should say, but even I can tell you that in the time of uh, John Calvin and afterward, uh, and that would mean we're talking now, uh, you know, several years after Martin Luther, so somewhere between 15 and 1600, the, the, the church that believed they were the true church were executing professing Christians because they did not hold the same manner of confession of faith that was held uh, in what were considered the respected churches. And so John Calvin had one of his neighbors burned at the stake. Uh, for being a heretic. Uh, and that went on uh, clear up into the 17 and probably 1800s. We know about the Spanish Inquisition and the Inquisition that went on for hundreds of years in the Catholic Church. We know about the uh, Waldenses and the uh, Paul. Paul, Paulicians and uh, the uh, the other primitive churches that existed alongside of Catholicism, and they were persecuted uh, uh, without halt mm -hmm. from the time shortly after Constantine up even until just recently. And probably still going on in some places. So, what do we understand from that? We understand that it is not the job of members 
who proclaim Christ to cast out or to, if if you would, you see, what did you do to a tear if you if you chopped the roots of the tear up with a hoe? What did you do to the tear? You killed it. And that's what the landowner said. We don't want to do that because we we don't see perfectly. We may we may kill some of the good bears of fruit. And so the the idea for most of the history of Christendom was to develop a catechism and develop a statement of faith and then kill anyone who did not adhere to that. That's what went on from 400 AD up until just recently. And that is not how we are to deal with the dissenters of our theology. We are not to to make the decision regarding whose wheat and whose tares. And God knows the hearts of men. It doesn't mean that every believer has exactly the same theology. Uh, And there are questions that are legitimate. But we are not to be so narrow that and so evil that we would actually destroy those people who do not think exactly as we think. And that is forbidden. Now, what we do, however, is in the body of Christ, in the church, those who openly sin, then we will put them out of the church for a time, hoping that they will repent. But we do not kill them. And we do not attempt to destroy them. And I've said to you more than once that the Christian church is the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded. And these things should not be. We should should deal with sin in our midst, particularly if it's public and it's open. But we... uh, we should not destroy or kill those or, or, or mark them for the rest of their life because uh, they have fallen into sin. And if that were true, by the way, what would be what would be the, the fate of each of us? So uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares deals with that question, doesn't it? Because they they were not to hoe up the tares, but leave it to the angels that when the time of harvest is come, that the angels will be given uh, the discernment to know which are truly 
members of the body of Christ and those which are simply professing faith. That doesn't mean they're all lying. Many of them may be greatly deceived by the devil, but the Scripture does not teach us that that deception, uh, which would bring about heresy, uh, is excusable, for it is not. None of us should be deceived. We should continually be examining ourselves to see if there's any wicked way in us, and that would include that we be not deceived. And how many times are we admonished in the Scripture, be not deceived? So, uh, neither for those who are dece- deceived do we destroy those people, do we kill them. All right, verse 40, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And so that is Christ's explanation only to his disciples of the second parable. Now, I left in limbo then the two parables between the explanation of the second and um, the uh, explanation of the first. So we'll fall back then to chapter 13. Uh, I'll deal with the next two parables and that'll about do it for us this evening. So chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. And right after that is the the parable of the leaven. I am sorry to tell you that there is a great part of, of the believing Uh, world, or at least the professing world, that do not properly interpret the second parable. By the way, every one of these parables, except the 
except the parable about Israel being hidden in a field and the pearl of a great price, every one of these parables tells us the same thing. And that is that God's going to work in the world in various ways, and at the end, there are going to be mixed together those who are true believers and those who aren't, and that God's going to have to separate them. Uh, and so many have taken this parable of the grain of mustard seed and said, oh, yes, this is wonderful. Look, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and when it was sowed in the field, it grew into a great tree. And that's, uh, that is uh, why we would say to you that uh, Christianity is going to conquer the earth and that the, everything's going to get better and better until finally we have made this earth a paradise. And it will be then fit for Christ to return. And that's how they look at that parable. What they don't understand is the meaning of the birds that uh, nest in this uh, pseudo tree, because a, a mustard seed doesn't really bring forth a tree. It brings forth a large plant that kind of looks like a tree. But anyway, it's big enough for the birds to come. The fact is this, uh, any time, and I'm not aware of, of uh, I'm just trying to think of any instances uh, in the scripture uh, other than the dove that uh, rested over Christ when he was baptized, um, but at least every one that I can remember, and there are several, uh, descriptions in the scripture that deals with birds, it is always a negative, has always has a negative connotation. You see birds mentioned in the Old Testament, the first conclusion you ought to make uh, before you think to make sure you're right is that this is likely something very negative. And so it is that uh, Christendom will become very large. Uh, I don't know, at the, maybe the last count, uh, there was something close to estimated uh, three billion uh, Christians uh, in the world. Uh, and people would say, look at the great tree that God has made, the great number, how Christianity is, is flourished in such a way. Well, I only have several things to say is that most of them who profess Christ never knew him. And secondly, my friends, as you were watching the world, 
unfold or collapse around you, do you really have the hope that the world's going to get better and better? <laughs> and, you know, most of us uh, that believe as we do, believe that the Lord is preparing this earth for his return. And instead of having perfection to look forward to, immediately we have the rapture and a great tribulation after that, where the earth will be judged. And so uh, we, we also will find that that kind of theology is not acceptable among so many in the Reformed circles of uh, what is called Christianity today. And it's, well, it's very disheartening for me when I think about how many there are out there that would mistranslate or misinterpret these parables. And finally, the third parable, uh, um, pardon me, the fourth parable called the fourth mystery uh, goes as follows, starting with chapter 6, 13, verse 33 of Matthew. Another parable spake he unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, and uh, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the world. Uh, and by the way, the reference for that, when it says, uh, as it has been said, uh, is Psalm chapter 78, verse 2. Uh, so, let's talk about leaven for a minute before we close tonight. Uh, anybody that's ever baked bread, uh, the, the expert on leaven uh, in our midst uh, should be uh, Catherine, uh, the bread lady. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and she knows all about leaven because when she mixes up the dough, she adds leaven to it, and it uh, it brings about a uh, germination of bacteria uh, in the bread that causes gases to cause the loaf before it's uh, baked to puff up. And uh, if you don't have that, then you get what you get when you go to a Greek restaurant and get uh, unleavened bread, uh, which is fine. Uh, but uh, remember that 
when we take communion, we take it with unleavened bread. There's not supposed to be leaven in it. And when the Jews are uh, the, the nation of Israel was to come out of Egypt uh, on the Passover meal before that, they were to, to only use unleavened bread. For leaven always in the scripture is, a, is, a, is typical of corruption. And so what this passage says, it doesn't say that the woman uh, puts the leaven into uh, the whole church or all of Christendom. It says that in a certain confine of uh, three measures, yeah, three measures of meal, this leaven is placed. And so, to to really bring the parable to uh, to represent all of Christendom, there would be many. Uh, locations, should we say. Uh, maybe we could put it in the terms of individual assemblies of believers that would receive uh, some lie that would cause deception and bring about damage uh, to the lives of those who were deceived. And so this would come, uh, by the way, I'm sorry to say this, but also in the scripture, when you find a woman doing something, it usually has a negative connotation. And uh, uh, I'll leave that one between you and the Lord, but uh, we see that quite a bit. Um, if we go back to Zechariah, we see quite a bit of that. So, uh, what did Christ say about the various forms of leaven in Christendom? Well, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is uh, religion for self-righteousness. Beware of the Sadducees who were skeptical about anything associated with the supernatural or the spiritual. And the third one, uh, I think uh, we ought to give a lot of thought to, is beware of the Herodians. And the Herodians was a uh, sect of Jews who uh, did not buy all of this asceticism in regard to having control of our uh, of our bodily desires and so on, but that anything goes and uh, the liberty that we have in Christ. Uh, we can just uh, abuse that 
because where grace does abound, or pardon me, where sin abounds, then grace abounds even more. And of course, Paul had to, what he had to say about that was, God forbid. Uh, but the Herodians were worldlings. Uh, they were they were after this world. They wanted to be entertained. They they wanted to possess things in the world. Uh, they were materialistic, and Christ specifically warned against these three groups of people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Sadducees, by the way, were the intellectual. Uh, they were the Harvard doctorate types who, uh, you know, dissected every word of the Old Testament to make it say whatever uh, seemed right to them. And uh, much of Jew Jewish uh, traditional writings, for example, the Talmud and the Midrash are filled with uh, the, uh, the foolish and uh, imagine, imaginary doctrines that were brought to the Jews by uh, the scribes and, and the rabbis and the particular note, noted Jewish teachers. And that tradition is, for the most part, what makes up Judaism today. So enough said about that. And so we find that Christ only explain one of the seven parables, and we find that the last three of the parables uh, in Matthew 13 were not given to uh, the larger part of Israel, but were given only to the disciples of Christ. Um, and we also understand that even when Christ came and he was, his, his message to the Jews was legitimate. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, in Luke, he, he would have said uh, the, the kingdom of God is at hand, but um, the Jews were not having any part of it. And so they bore responsibility. And you'll remember in Peter's first sermon and at the end of it, after he described all that Christ had done, that this same Christ was the Messiah and that the Jews had crucified him. Uh, and this is what prompted the question from the, the masses hearing Peter's first sermon, men and brethren, what shall we do? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a good question. That's a good question for each one of us. As we find truth in the scripture, 
that truth is not there for us to say, oh, uh, you know, I've, I find it satisfying to have some understanding, but if I don't put that understanding uh, to work in the way I conduct my walk before the Lord, then uh, it is wasted and it is vain for us simply to be ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, which is how Paul described people in the last days in the church. And so we could go on and find so much that the uh, theologians uh, and prophets of God wrote in the New Testament after the Gospels uh, that show us that indeed what how Christ described the progress of the church was absolutely accurate. And historically, it's accurate. And it's accurate today. And so, um, you know, I think almost every man looks at himself and should, should take to heart the scriptural warning, let him who thinketh he standeth beware lest he fall. Loving God with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength is a tall order, but it is possible through the spirit of him who loves us. May God bless each one of you with this truth. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you that uh, we have heard tonight a broader discussion of the parables of the kingdom of heaven uh, broader than any that we have heard yet. For I certainly uh, benefited and am moved by many of the things that you have revealed in this study. Yes. Thank you for it. Uh, Lord, may we, may we consider that uh, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, with the understanding that it is God who worketh in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. We bless your name tonight. I pray that you would bless these people. I pray that, that uh, they would find their joy and their peace every day uh, in the resurrected life of Christ in them. For I pray in Jesus' name.